I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, page 1090, 1090 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be focusing on the verses 21 through 24, but I'd like to read the first seven verses ahead of that. So chapter 2, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then, of course, the angels appear to the shepherds in the following verses. We're going to pick it up at verse twenty. One, and this is our text. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That'll be our focus this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing hymn 17, the song of Mary, and if you listen carefully, you can hear in Mary's song an echo of Psalm 98, which we're also singing this morning. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The birth of the Savior is an extraordinary event with meaning for the entire created world. And the story is a dramatic one. We know it well. Mighty Caesar Augustus makes a decree that moves the impoverished Joseph and Mary to travel from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem in the south to be registered. And there, in the crudest of places, the baby was born and laid in a manger. Before the night is out, multitudes of angels appear in the sky, singing God's praises. Shepherds come to Bethlehem to see the baby. Later on, we read about magi, wise men, magi from the east, led by a a star that's moving in the sky to come to Judah and pay their respects to the newborn king, offering him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. 
exciting stuff. Angelic beings rejoice in the sky. Creation, that star, is itself physically moved. Gentiles and Jews come around to worship. All of it shows the amazing wonder of this child's arrival. Well, what then are we to make of our text? It all seems, by comparison, so dull, so mundane, even boring. What we have in our text is a standard circumcision, the naming of the baby, then a couple of old-fashioned ceremonies up at the temple in Jerusalem. Is this really Christmassy? It sounds like a bunch of necessary legalities that perhaps had to be done, but who likes dealing with legalities, especially Christmas morning? We came here to hear the gospel of Christmas, right? Well, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit lays out before us. This text certainly does speak about legalities. It speaks about judgments and curses, but it also speaks about the Messiah who came to save us from them all. So I bring to you this word of the Lord. The Savior is born under the law to take on our curse. That's our theme. We'll see that he was born into uncleanness, and he was first born into judgment. In our text, Luke draws our attention to the law of the Lord, mentioning, mentioning it by name specifically three times in these four verses. In fact, he lays out for us three different ceremonies of the law, the law of Moses, circumcision on the eighth day, that's verse 21. Then there's the presentation of the firstborn male, as we read about it in Exodus 13. And then there's the sacrifice of the purification of the mother and the child, as we read about that in Leviticus 12. And the way that Luke mentions them here, just kind of in close succession, almost blending the two latter sacrifices together, he's assuming the reader will get the connections. He's assuming that we will understand what's going on, but for us living in Ancaster nearly 2,000 years later, that may be more challenging than Luke bargained for. So we're going to slow ourselves down this morning. We're going to try and unpack this text, and we'll begin with the purification sacrifice of Leviticus 12. And I wonder if you'd turn with me in Scripture to Leviticus 12 so we can understand the, the reference Luke is making here more clearly. Page 111, 112, actually 114. So there in Luke, Leviticus 12, verse 1, the Lord says, instructs the people, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And we read further on that the same uncleanness would apply if she were to bear a female child. And when we read this, to us it seems so very strange, so very foreign. 
And don't we normally receive the gift of children? Don't we normally find the birth of a child a wonderful event? I mean, we've had a number in our congregation the last number of months. Everyone has been able to rejoice in the birth of various children. Was it not God who created the birthing process? Was it not God who commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and increase in number? And isn't this Christmas Day itself a very happy day celebrating the birth of the most precious baby ever born in the world's history? So that raises a question, why did birth make the mother unclean? We have a more basic question, I think, what does unclean even mean? When we use that word in everyday life, we tend to use it referring to something that's dirty, maybe the, the dishes in your sink or the laundry in your hamper. Is the mother somehow dirty or unclean in that way? And if so, why does she stay unclean for 40 days? Wouldn't a bath take care of that problem if she was unclean like that? And then there's an additional question of why the mother's time of uncleanness is 40 days if she gives birth to a boy, but double to 80 days if she gives birth to a girl. I mean, what's up with that? Is there something wrong with girls? Are girls being treated here as second-class citizens? It all seems very puzzling, even maybe a bit disturbing. But when we remember how God created mankind, male and female, both equally in His image, Genesis 1, and when we remember how the Lord Jesus Christ treated women like Mary Magdalene and Martha and the other Mary, treated them always with dignity and respect and care, then we know that God cannot be singling out women for unfair treatment here in the law. That's just not who God is, is He? He doesn't do that anywhere in Scripture. No, there's something going on here, something else going on, and it's connected to the meaning of clean and unclean. And while we, we can't get into all the details because it, it's a, a challenging subject, but we can make some things clear, I hope. Clean and unclean do not mean dirty and not dirty. No, that's a, it's a different category. They have to do, these are words that describe a person standing before God. Clean and unclean are relationship terms. They're not describing an inherent condition or an acquired condition of the body or the soul. No, clean and unclean have to do with the way God looks at you. Are you clean in God's eyes or are you unclean in God's eyes? If you are clean in God's eyes, then you may come near to Him to worship. That's the big thing. If you are unclean in God's eyes, you may not come near to worship. God points this out in Leviticus 12, verse 4. She shall not touch anything, that's the mother, anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary. 
until the days of her purifying are completed. She can't go into the tabernacle to worship. So it's associated, this clean, unclean, is associated with the tabernacle, with the presence of God among the people. And you remember that after the Exodus, God had done something very gracious and merciful to His people Israel. He decided to come down to the earth to dwell right in the middle of His sinful people in their camp to set up His home there. So this righteous and sinless Almighty God literally set up His home tabernacle in the camp. But we know that this righteous and holy God cannot tolerate sin or sinners. Somehow sin has to be punished. It has to be removed from His presence before the sinner can draw near to worship. That's what all those animal sacrifices are about you first had to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. So, neither sin nor anything to do with sin, that is, anything that was unclean in the Lord's eyes, could ever come into His presence, could stand before Him. The Lord says it quite plainly in Leviticus 15, verse 31, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So when you think of uncleanness, when you read about it in Scripture, you have to think about how God looks at the person and understand that it's got everything to do with defiling or not defiling God's dwelling place among His people. Well, what is it then specifically, besides sin, which is dealt with in the sacrifices, what is it besides sin that would defile God's home? What is so connected to human sin that men and women at various times and under various circumstances were considered by God to be unclean, they couldn't approach Him? And what about all those clean and unclean animals we read about in Leviticus 11. And the answer is God's judgment against man's original sin. God's judgment against their original sin. So the sin, going back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, that sin is offensive to God, but equally so the curse against sin was not to come into God's presence. Even though the curse originates from God, it cannot be allowed in His presence. It would be like letting the fires of hell, and you know that hell is the place where God's wrath burns eternally, it'd be like allowing the fires of hell inside the gates of heaven. Unthinkable. Because inside the gates of heaven, God's dwelling place, only God's love may be. You can't have sin, and you can't have the curse against sin in heaven. Well, so on earth in the tabernacle, you can't have sin, and you can't have the curse against sin, the judgment of God against sin come into the tabernacle. So when you look back, or when you stand back to, to look over all those laws of clean and unclean, and there's quite a few of them in Leviticus, 
there's a center block from chapter 11 to 15, then you can see those laws tracking with God's judgments pronounced in Genesis 3. You remember Genesis 3, God pronounced judgment against the serpent, an animal. God pronounced judgment against the woman and finally against the man. Well, here in Genesis or Leviticus 12 then, God deals specifically with the judgment He announced against the woman in Genesis 3 verse 16. The judgment that her pain would be multiplied in the process of childbearing. You recall that man, Adam, his punishment was tied up with the dust of the ground. He would, he would have to work the ground by the sweat of his brow, and the ground would no longer be uh, willing to give its produce to him without a fight, so to speak. Well, the woman's punishment was tied to the process of childbearing. And that's what makes a new mother, or a mother giving, just given birth, that's what makes her unclean in God's eyes. So there's a paradox here. On the one hand, the bearing of children was itself a blessing from God. It was itself a good thing. But on the other hand, the very process of childbearing, it had fallen under God's righteous judgment. And so, even though Mary gives birth to the Savior of the world, she was unclean in God's eyes because that was the process. The baby had to come through the process of God's judgment. And the child who came forth from her inmost being was born into the mother's uncleanness. Do you see here, brothers and sisters, the that the depths, the, the, the true depths of our human misery and depravity. What keeps us apart from God is not just that original sin we all took part in in the Garden of Eden. That's bad enough. Sin which affects the whole entire human race. It's also not just our daily sins, which are numberless, right? I mean, just think about our daily sins. It's not also just the corruption of our souls and bodies. These things would be, are, are, are all horrible enough, but it's also, it's also God's judgment over us for our sin, which touches all of life from the animals that we rule over as humans, to the ground we work, to the marriage relationship, to the conception and birth of children. By nature, we and our children, we're all sinners filled with guilt, original sin, and we live under God's righteous judgment. That's what makes us unclean in God's eyes. That's what the word unclean refers to, living under the judgment of God. We are not just rebels, we're unclean rebels. We're rebels under judgment. How could we ever hope to come close to God in, in some kind of peace? How could we ever hope to get out from underneath God's curse 
be forgiven our sins, be declared clean, and be welcomed into the presence of God again. I mean, the, the, the mountain of our misery is, makes Mount Everest look like a, a puny dot. Well, when you see the mountain of our misery, then you begin to see the gospel wonder that shines out from our text. For this child that we're speaking of in Luke 2 is the Son of God, conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. The child then in himself has no sin. The child in himself is not under God's judgment. The child in Mary's womb of himself is clean, the only child ever to be born clean. The only child ever to be born that needs no curse to fall on him because he has given no offense to God. He does not share in Adam and Eve's original sin. And then the Son of God, this child, he places himself in Mary's womb not to stand apart from her uncleanness, no, but to unite himself with her uncleanness, with every woman's uncleanness and every man's uncleanness. Did you notice that he was circumcised on the eighth day according to God's law? Verse 21, circumcision, that was for the, the male children only. Some cultures today, and even I think in those days, they circumcised females. But God's law only specifies circumcising males. Only they had to have a portion of their skin removed and their blood shed. And you know, it's very interesting, and we should think about this from a cultural perspective for a moment, very interesting how today very few think to ask whether the law of circumcision is unfair to males. Right? I mean, when we read through Leviticus 12, we've got to get our backs up a little bit on behalf of the girls. Girls seem to be treated unfairly. Is, is there misogyny at work here? What's going on? But the painful act of boys having their foreskins removed by a flint knife and nothing parallel for girls, isn't that anti-men, we might ask? Isn't that misandristic? Well, brothers and sisters, let's not, let's not import and impose today's cultural battles onto God's Word. Let's not do that. Because we know from Scripture God is not anti-men. God is not anti-women. He made men and women in His image. Right? You know what God is anti? God is anti-sin. That's what God is anti that's what all these laws have to do with, sin and their consequences. Removal of the foreskin was a sign, was a promise from God given to future heads of every home, to all those males, that the sin nature of all God's children would one day be removed through the shedding of blood, the Messiah's blood. That's what's going on in circumcision. And 33 years after Jesus was circumcised, he poured out his lifeblood on the cross until there was no life left in him, in his body. He did that in order to pay once and for all for man's original sin in the garden. 
Jesus came and He took on our uncleanness, yours and mine. He took on your sin and mine. Every sin we've ever done, every sin we'll ever do, Jesus took them all on His shoulders to bear our punishment in our place. The full payment He made on Golgotha, but the down payment He made on the eighth day in His bloody circumcision. And that, by the way, is why the mother's period of uncleanness was shortened in the case of a baby boy. When we read Leviticus 12 with our cultural eyes, we think, hey, that's not very fair. The baby girl's, uh, the uncleanness in the case of a baby girl was doubled. You have to look at it the other way around. The uncleanness of the baby, uh, of the mother in the case of a baby boy was halved was halved because of circumcision. God accepted the blood of the boy's circumcision as a sign of Christ's future sacrifice, and that brought about a partial cleansing for the mother and cut the period of her uncleanness in half. It's not anti-women. It's pro-Messiah, circumcised, circumcision and sacrifice. What does it boil down to? It boils down to this. Jesus makes the unclean clean. Maybe you notice in the New Testament that after Jesus rises from the dead, all the distinction of clean and unclean disappears. All animals are declared clean. You find it in the book of Acts. The curse of God against our original sin has been removed by Jesus' death and resurrection. So everyone who comes, and that's Jew and Gentile, because the Gentiles were all unclean in the Old Testament. But now Jew and Gentile may freely come. The whole human race is free to put their trust in Christ, and they are clean in God's eyes when they do. You and I, brothers and sisters, we've got plenty of reasons to feel dirty, don't we, about our own sins. We read the law earlier. You think back about the last seven days. How many times didn't we mess up, consciously or unconsciously? How many times didn't we say a cross word? How many times didn't we think a mean thought? How many times were our actions less than loving? Dirty. It's not hard to feel as a human being, a sinner. But here's the gospel. As often as we repent, as often as we look to the Messiah in faith, we are clean to our Father. We may come to our Father in heaven without fear, for He receives us through Christ as His sons and daughters. That really comes out with that other law, that Mary and Joseph make sure to obey. You find that in verse 23 of our text. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. It's not an exact quote of any Old Testament passage, but Luke is referring to the Lord's instruction given in Exodus 13, which we read. Verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, from the wider context, we know that the reference in chapter 13 is to firstborn males. 
The consecration involved two different things, as we read it in Exodus 13. In the case of animals, it mostly involved sacrificing the firstborn male animal to the Lord. But in the case of unclean animals, of which a donkey is mentioned, the donkey either had to be redeemed by the sacrifice of some clean animal, or the donkey had to be put to death by breaking its neck. That's how the animals were to be dealt with. But in the case of a child, a male child, the son was not to be ever sacrificed, nor was the son ever to be maimed, but, verse 15 of Exodus 13, all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. The Lord claimed every child as His own property, every firstborn certainly, to serve Him. But He allowed the parents to take the child back if they would redeem Him. Now, you can think here of a, a very close parallel in the life of Samuel. You remember Hannah prayed for the boy to, to conceive and bear a, a child, and she did. The Lord gave her the baby Samuel. And after a number of years, she brought her firstborn to consecrate him to the Lord. She didn't redeem him to, to remain in her family, but she gave him into the service of the Lord as a priest in the tabernacle. Later on in, in the book of Numbers, God set a redemption price for each firstborn son. The parents had to pay five shekels of silver, and then they would keep their son in the family. Now, again, we're dealing with something so unfamiliar to us. I mean, we don't talk about buying back from the Lord our firstborn children. But the reason for this is explained in Exodus 13. The Lord says this, verse 14, in days to come when your son asks you about this, and I just want to mention to the boys and girls that the Lord knows you're going to ask questions and He wants you to ask questions, right? It's good to ask questions, and mom and dad, it's good to give answers. And the Lord helps parents with, with the answer, verse 14, by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that at first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So the consecration of the firstborn of every Israelite's son was directly tied to the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. There was a cost to redeeming Israel from Egypt, and the Israelites had to remember that cost. They could never forget that cost. Do you remember how that went? God rescued His people from Egypt by that most deadly final plague, the slaughter of the firstborn sons, as well as the firstborn male animals, among all the Egyptians. At last, that forced Pharaoh's hand to release God's people. And yet, it was not only the Egyptian, Egyptians who died that night. God did not just punish Pharaoh and his people and then whisk Israel out of Egypt into safety. No, there was much more to it. 
There was death in every household in the land that night, whether Egyptian or Israelite. Only in the Israelite homes, it was not the firstborn son that died. It was a lamb without blemish that died. This was a a giant, forceful message for the covenant people. God was saying, by rights, your firstborn son should have been killed alongside the Egyptian firstborn sons. It's not just the Egyptians, my people, who stand guilty before me, but also you, my very own covenant people. You are sinners worthy of my wrath, worthy of condemnation. You are all unclean and you are all guilty in your sin. But... And it is the but of the gospel... But, says the Lord to His people, I will provide an escape for you. I will provide it in the substitute of a lamb. God was making a point. The firstborn sons, they were symbolic of the whole nation. If God could claim the right of ownership to the firstborn males, that meant that God was saying, I'm owner and master of all the people. I own the Egyptians and I own the Israelites. And by extension, I own all the people of the world. I own also the beasts of the field. Remember, He's Almighty Creator, so all the creatures belong to Him. All His creation belongs to Him. And because every human is in rebellion against God, every human deserves to be put to death. Unless... They are given cover under the blood of God's Lamb. That's the gospel of the tenth plague and of the exodus out of Egypt. That was the miracle of the Passover in Egypt. Egyptian sons died because they were given no lamb. They had no blood to paint on their doorways. But the Israelite sons lived because they did have protection under the blood of the Lamb. Without that blood on their doorways, they also would have fallen under God's curse and would have fallen by God's angel of death. Rescue came at a cost. It came at the cost of the firstborn. Every Egyptian family felt the sting of that cost in the sorrow of their oldest son's death. But by contrast, every Israelite family felt the cost in the joy of the substitute lamb. In both cases, payment was made And God was teaching them and us today that our ultimate rescue from enslavement to sin would also come at a cost. The highest cost of God's firstborn, His only Son. That's why the Bible and we still today use the word redemption to describe our salvation. For it wasn't just uh, rescuing from the bad guys taking a bunch of slaves out of Egyptian slavery, much more than that. 
by the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God paid the legal price for our rebellion. He was paying the cost of his own justice. In the darkness of Golgotha, it was God the Father who felt the stinging sorrow of the precious, of the death of his own precious son, while all of God's people felt the joy of being released from bondage once and for all. Redemption costs. Do we understand the cost? The cost to God. He bore the cost. If you've got a son, if you've got a daughter, would you give him or her up to pay for somebody else's crimes? Would you punish your firstborn child to save an ungrateful neighbor down the street or even a neighbor that despises you? It's unthinkable, right, to, to, to take one of our children and do that for an, a neighbor who hates us. Unthinkable. Well, brothers and sisters, Christmas is God doing the unthinkable. Christmas is God sending His Son to be born of a woman under the law, under its curse, born into uncleanness, born to bear the humiliation of sinners like you and me all the way to the cross to render payment for ungrateful, hateful enemies like you and me. Christmas is grace. Pure grace. Look at Jesus then, the firstborn of Mary and Joseph, presented at the temple like any other firstborn, no doubt paying the redemption fee of five shekels. Though without sin in himself, here is Jesus submitting himself to God's law and being the firstborn into judgment, our judgment. And an offering is made for him and his mother. Right at the end of our text, the offering of the poor. They couldn't even afford a lamb, so they offered up two turtle doves. Here is your Savior. From birth already, suffering in our place as the perfect Lamb of God, as our most excellent, righteous, holy substitute, enduring God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who, who cleanses us from our sin and from all the judgment of God. He cleanses us truly from cradle to grave. Where can you find a more complete salvation than that? Where can you find a greater love for us than in Jesus? So then embrace Christ as your Savior and let your soul rejoice and magnify the Lord. Amen.